Hello. Cure. G'day. Kimmy's dad. Welcome. G'day. This is Ed's on Sean with an H. Ads is brought to you by BesideTheSeaside.co.nz Josh Easby is one of Australasia's most well-known media people. Trained journo, he went from newspapers in the mid-80s to manager of once pirate radio station Haraki between 87 and 89. Became CEO of the Prospect Radio Group here in New Zealand early 90s and then went to the UK for a working holiday and stayed seven years then for APN in Sydney and six years as Deputy Chair of Radio New Zealand. With a career across three countries, there's not much this bloke doesn't know about media and in particular radio. Hi Josh, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks Sean. A lot of my mates said we should have a chat and uh, while our paths never cross formally, there's quite a lot of sliding doors happening if I recall. Firstly, Radio Haraki, um, arguably a, a worldwide icon of radio, same category as Radio Caroline. I was there in the early 80s and it was pretty wild then, you in 87 when the world went in a meltdown. Tell us about that. What, what was that like? Well, that was my first introduction to radio. I never sort of actively tried to get into radio. It sort of happened by accident. Haraki, you know, the uh, 87... Uh, share market crash and all that accompanied that. Haraki uh, suddenly found itself in uh, a heap of poop and uh, the owners asked me to go in there and stem the bleeding and I was promised you'll only be there three months while we find a real manager. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I went in there to hold the fort just just while they uh, tried to recruit a real manager, unquote, and uh, I ended up being there 18 months and um, and really enjoyed it and got a bug for uh, for, for the medium. And, um, you know, I was only I was there about 18 months. Who was um, on here? Who was some of the talent that was there those days? Oh, well, it was quite different when I got there from when I left <laughs> um, because of the uh, previously mentioned meltdown. Uh, but when I arrived there, the breakfast show was uh, um, Blackie, uh, Phil Gifford, John Hawksby, and... Great talent. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, some, some real pros. But, you know, it was, it was one of those situations where, you know, when times were good in radio... In those days, times were really good. So, you know, the station had about 55 staff, which is sort of like unthinkable these days. Um, But unfortunately, it meant that when the, you know, when when the advertising bubble bursts, um, you're suddenly stuck with... um, A whole lot of people. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, radio is really uh, rent, electricity and people. And, uh, you know, so you, you haven't got many choices when... When you've got to fight for survival, but um, what was your toughest you know, um, redundancy? Do you remember you had to make? Do you remember what that toughest redundancy was? Uh, it, it, it didn't really sort of like happen like that because you know, for instance, because the thing was in so much trouble. For instance, just about the entire sales team had walked out before I got there. <laughs> so mm-hmm. when I arrived, there was only one salesperson left on the payroll. And uh, after she met me on day one, she handed in her resignation as well. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you struck so, a good chord with it. Well, exactly. You know, so it was, um, you know, so it, it, it wasn't so much a case of uh, uh, having to lay people off. 
uh, you know, the thing was in free fall, um, except with, say, the presenters who had fixed-term contracts. It, the theory back then was to lock people in on fixed-term contracts, but, uh, you know, I, I hate fixed-term contracts. They're bad for the business, but they're also bad for the people. And um, the, a good example of that was uh, I want you to remember working with some stations in the UK, and uh, I got up, did a presentation, and explained the three-year plan. And I said, right, any questions? And one of the breakfast jocks, you know, said, you know, three-year plan's great, so why am I on a one-year contract? <laughs> and, and you know, it's a brilliant question. Yeah. And um, ideally, the management should be scared of losing the talent and, and not locking them in with contracts. And the talent, um, you know, if they've got better options, um, you know, good luck to them. They, they've created that opportunity, if, you know. Hierarchy in those days, Josh, was um, were probably you know to be to be fair to it, it, it was huge in the eighties and and probably right through to the nineties and great talent. They they never really recovered, did it? Really, it, it, it sort of it feels like it's a well a minor station now in New Zealand. Where it, to me, it always felt like it could have been huge. Hierarchy it didn't benefit from being held on AM for so long. So when when FM radio came into the market and Haraki was forced to stay on AM, it was a huge disadvantage. You know, people were trading in their old transistor radios and buying these, you know, ghetto blasters in the 80s um, and they'd flick the switch and go from sort of stereo listening to the new FM stations and yeah, then... Right. Yeah. Click over to Haraki, and it, you know it was horrible. No matter how so, good it was, it was never going to compete against that, was it? No. So, so that was the first problem. So, so that that sort of made life very difficult. Just before I left, we got the station onto FM. I've touched um, on the differences between New Zealand and New Zealand, Australia, and the UK before about what deregulation did for the industry in those countries. You, you, you worked in every market. You know, New Zealand, Australia, UK. What's your take on it? Uh, deregulation. The, the, the downside is you you face huge challenges of fragmentation. So you know, when you said you know hierarchy relatively small, it, I don't think of it as small. It, it, it just it's, it, it's a niche. It fills a niche, right. and it super serves that niche. Um, but when you've only got, say, five stations in a huge market, uh, you're not niche. You know, you're all big. But when you've got 50 stations in the same market, you have no choice. You know, you, you, you can't be all things to all people. I remember, uh, Josh, going to, um, going to Australia and working uh, for ARN in the early 80s. I went over there and worked in radio again, and, and, my God, there was like 12 commercial radio stations against Auckland's 50. You know, like it was just, and there were 700,000 people listening to each station. It was like, for a copywriter, I was in, I was in dreamland, you know, like I had all these people yeah. listening to my ads and it was so much Hello. easier, it felt, than, than New Zealand. Well, just to give you a, a starker contrast, the late 90s, I left New Zealand to go on a working holiday <laughs> that lasted seven years. Oh. Um, I, I headed to the UK. So I was leaving a small country of New Zealand that had more than 400 radio stations and, and was the most radio-intensive 
country in the world on a per capita basis. Unbelievable. We had 400 radios. At all those stations were uh, deregulated. So, you know, you had 40 plus stations in Auckland, you know, with a population of 1.2 mil. So I went over to the UK to work for GWR Group. And the first thing they got me to do was work on a station that at that stage was, in their mind, in trouble. It was having a few problems. And it, it covered the area of Luton, which had a similar population to Auckland. So instead of 40-odd radio stations fighting for that population, there were two. Amazing, isn't and, it? A big and, difference. Yeah, but it gets even better. And they were both owned by us. <laughs> <laughs> it was incredible. And and they, they asked me to fix it because it was only making... £1.2 million profit. And I looked at the exchange rate and realised that this station that uh, was supposedly in trouble was making more profit than the entire commercial radio industry of New Zealand put together at the time. And, you know, the the contrast was was just unbelievable. And And I could clearly see the impact of deregulation over here. But I have to say... It isn't all bad. I mean, there was a downside to deregulation, which was the change process and all the damage that it did during that process. Um, But the the huge upside was the fact that, you know, Sean, if you and I uh, decide right now that we'd like to start a radio station that caters for people who love the game of chess, um, there is nobody who can stop you and I from doing that. You and I could start the radio station for for chess players if we felt inclined, and we could have it up and running within a week. No regulator would tell us when it has to broadcast, which is you know. which is good. And, uh, and uh, but the only problem is it's, it's our population base, I suppose. I remember in um, Auckland in the nineties and so forth. You'd hear <laughs> you'd hear announcers go from one station to the other, and sometimes forget what station they were on because they were all that they were doing three or four stations at a time. Window, exactly, exactly. And it was it was born out of necessity, you know, because there had to be a different. Um, financial model, but it also inspired a heck of a lot of innovation and creativity. You know, we, we discovered the people who were really valuable were the people who could do lots of different things and, and in different ways. You you talk about your UK experience. There's a what's the story about the MP who rang? He rang you. What that sounds oh, interesting. When I got over there, and I witnessed this great contrast between deregulated and heavily regulated. Um, I just couldn't believe uh, the constraints on radio people because of their license. So, you know, the company I worked for, one of the stations was fined £5,000 for playing too many songs from the 1970s. Um, Now, whilst many of us might think disco music is a crime, um, I don't think anybody should have to pay five grand just because they accidentally played one too many, you know, because their license limited the number of uh, songs from each era, which is just ridiculous. So I saw that as a form of censorship. And the, the difficulty was it wasn't just a case of, being censored, it was a case of self-censorship because stations were so frightened of losing their licenses that they'd pull their punches. And so I was looking after five stations in the Northwest, 
including one at the world um, near where you've been. And we had some in, in, in Wales. And, and we moved a few staff members around. And I remember we transferred one journalist from one of our stations to another one because it was best for the station. And the local MP rang me up and was irate. Um, I'm very upset you're moving my journalist <laughs> away from my electorate. And I had to sort of gently remind him that it wasn't his journalist. And where did he get the idea that the journalist belonged to him? And he, he sort of said, well, that's the way it is. And if you want my support for the renewal of your license, you'll move it back. Wow. wow. And you sort of think, I can't believe I'm hearing this. This is um, <laughs> meant to be in a free, free country. And I realised then that uh, not, not everybody was willing to stand up to that sort of pressure um, because people would think, oh, better not rock the boat. Self-censorship. And in the, you know, I found it really difficult. Um, you know, I, the few times I came face-to-face -face with somebody from the regulator, um, I found it extremely difficult. There was, there was one discussion I had where um, I was debating, you know, some minor thing. And the regulator was going into huge detail. And I said, look, stop. Can, can you just explain to me as an outsider why you think regulation is so good? So they went through all the benefits. Uh, you know, we can keep stations from covering the same ground. We can segment them. We can safeguard the public from oh, yeah. horrible things like swearing on air. You know, yeah, and they went right, through the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. So, of course, I just kept my powder dry and I just said, OK, if I, if I agree with that, I've got one question for you. I said, what's that? I said, if it's working so well for radio, when are you going to start regulating the newspaper industry? And and said, I don't know what you mean. And I said, well, if your rationale is right for radio stations, why don't you apply exactly the same rationale for newspapers? So therefore, you issue licenses for a tabloid newspaper or a broadsheet, and absolutely. So you you know because the, the the argument would be exactly the same. And I said, the difference is if you tried to do it for newspapers, people would be up in arms and say you're censoring. Um, you know, freedom of the press. Yeah. But you do exactly the same for radio and expect us to go, well, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you expect you to be grateful. Yeah, and, and thanks for making sure our listeners don't get too many songs from the 1970s inflicted upon them. I worked at Radio City and you talked about how um, Kiwis, Aussies um, would, would go over to the UK. I remember starting at um, Radio City. It was, it was during um, the, the Troubles, um, Ireland and so forth. So security was tight and, or, and I, I struggled to get my head around that, but that's another story. But I remember starting that, um, being there about a week and upstairs and the writing, I was writing and, and it was interesting. They'd say to me, um, oh, you know, we, there was 55 people in the radio station. There was, like, people everywhere. There was, like, two permanent cleaners. So you'd try and go to the loo at, like, 10.30 in the morning and, and there'd be a cleaner in there. And you'd go, well, what, don't these people come at night? Or And, um, and, and things like that. No, I, I remember the guy saying, oh, 
I remember going upstairs to the where the guys were broadcasting and go, oh, that's a such and such desk. Have you got anyone to do mid dawns? And they'd look at me and they'd say, what you can do mid dawns? Oh yeah, I've done a few you know, air shifts. And then I'd go into the news department. I'd say, oh, you guys need a hand with anything? The promotions department. They just couldn't believe because of our great background here in New Zealand that we could do so many different things. They they put you as a writer and said, that's what you do. Just sit in that bloody corner, tap on that typewriter and, and get on with it <laughs> yeah exactly and, and again the core problem was uh, regulation it was easy for the regulators to count bodies so they'd say right we've given this radio station a license uh it's all in one building and now we want the list of what everyone does and they would determine and they'd say right you've got to have six journalists you've got to have a news editor you've got to have a news presenter or whatever and even if you found better ways of doing things or heaven forbid you had people who are so talented they could do more than one role that confused the heck out of the regulator <laughs> and, and, and 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 so some companies had a tendency to sort of just accept that and go don't fight city hall you know if the regulator wants you know, this, that, and the other, we'll, we'll, we'll just do it. Um, thankfully, I worked for GWR Group, which, you know, I thought were fantastic. Um, but it was no surprise that they'd gone out of their way to recruit New Zealanders and Australians. So we had about 50 or 60 Aussies and Kiwis working for us. And part of the thinking was that uh, GWR were extremely open to bringing in people with different ways of doing things and then quietly chipping away at the, the regulator to uh, to get things to change. It's um, a quick little story. I, I was in London and uh, was temp working one day, and they sent me to Granada Television. And I'd got there, the, uh, I won't bore you too long of the story, but I got there um, at 10 o'clock one day, and I, my job was to clean the rubber, uh, take the rubbish out of the, the bins and, and bag it up and, and, and put it in, you know. So, you know, that was about... <laughs> about two, an hour, two hours of the day. So the next day I get to Granada Television early, about five to, to about 10 to 8, I was due to start at 8, and the chairs were on the tables in the cafeteria where I was working. And, you know, I just walked in and started putting, as you would, you walk and start putting oh. chairs under the t- desk. Well, there was a bloke, Josh, that did that. <laughs> I just oh, no. about I just about caused a walkout in Granada Television because I'd put the chairs under the under the desks for where people were going to sit all day. It was hilarious, and I, of course I had no idea. You know, you just say, "Well, there's a job needs to be done. Let's get on with it." I remember being at the station one day, and what we'd done was we'd figured out a better way of putting our news bulletins to air. Right. So our best newsreader would read the bulletins for three stations. Uh, so obviously all three were pre-recorded and then would go out on the hour, but they were pre-recorded. Sure. We're talking two or three minutes before the hour. You know, it was it was all up to date. And and if all hell had broken loose, you'd go live anyway, you know? Of course. So it made sense to us because that meant we had the best voice on air doing the, the reading, but it also freed up two journalists to go and write stories. So the regulator heard about this and came in and was absolutely upset that we weren't doing the news live. And I said, well, it's three minutes old. It, you know, and it's better for, for everyone. And she just wouldn't wear it. So I said, well, you tell me how you think it should be done. And she said, well, when I was the news editor, she said I would sit in the booth next to the reader and I would hold the copy 
and I would hand them it one page at a time to read it live. Oh my God. I said, why would you do that? And she said, because then I could make changes. Ten seconds to go, I could change a comma or cross out a word. And I'm just thinking, oh, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in what world does this make sense? <laughs> and, yeah, look, look, I think we've come, I, I, I think the world has probably caught up with NZ in Australia a lot more, but um, we, we, we certainly led it in the 80s and 90s, and, and I'm sure the world has caught up with it. And the problem, Josh, of course, is, is and this is another issue, is, is monetizing it, of course. I mean, yeah, you, you can produce podcasts and produce, produce hundreds of them and people like me sitting in my little room here talking to you with a microphone on, but monetizing them becomes very difficult. And with so many people doing them around the world, that's, that's the issue and you wonder how long they'll last, you know, just from the enthusiast. If he's not going to earn anything from it, at the end of the day, you'll probably go, well, yeah, I'd better go get a real job. Yeah, although interestingly, with all the different types of new media, um, the people who are coming in completely fresh seem to find the ways of monetizing it far better than the traditional yes. people who are trying to adjust from, you know, how do we make, you know, so the newspaper people who used to make money out of selling ads and selling the actual printed paper, you know, they've now got their stuff online and they're finding it really difficult with paywalls and and, 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 the, and the backing and all that. Whereas lots of new content generators uh, right from day one have no, no problem because they don't have to adjust. So they've got, um, you know, patrons, they've got subscribers, they've got that they offer special deals. Um, yeah, yeah, I listen to I listen to several podcasts where I'm a big fan of um, Penn Gillette, you know, Penn and Teller, mainly known for their magicians, but for, for their magic show. But a very talented guy, and he's got a, a very interesting podcast. But he, he's done things like financed movies with crowdfunding, you know, where – they sell everything from a walk-on part to a whole different world, isn't it? You know exactly. He'll, he'll voice he'll voice your uh, message on your um, answer machine. You know, it, it's find finding different and new ways to uh, monetize. Um, but people who are just locked into the old model of saying, "Right, well, uh, are struggling." To, yeah, are struggling. To Thirty-second spot or a quarter-page newspaper ad. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Look, um, Josh, this kind of a uh, this podcast I've done is kind of creative one. We've done it. We've done over twenty. It's a we've kind of leaned a little bit towards radio creative. It seems to have evolved into didn't have to didn't didn't intend to do it that way, but it has. So let's, let's kind of head there. Um, I love your comment. You, you never received a check from a listener, so so, so the most the, the, I love that comment. The, the most important part, you know, creative to me, I've, I, has always been the second cousin to the to, to the on air guy, to the news, to the sales guy. Creative in a radio station has always been kind of well, it's something we've got to do, and and there you go. Which is why I always loved the UK. Even in the eighties, they were charging for creative. But where do you see creative? Do you see creative? Where do you see it going for radio in the next, you know, five, ten years? I think it's absolutely critical to uh, to that industry because, in my view, 
you know, the, the, the single most important thing in radio is whether the advertising works. Because if it works, the advertiser continues to give you money. If it doesn't work, they walk away. And, and, and when you think it through and say, for an ad campaign to work, it must mean that everything else is being done properly. So it means your programming's right. right. You're targeting the right audience. You, 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 your brand's right. It, it, it means you've got to get everything else right because if any of those things aren't done properly, then the, the, the cycle will fail. So therefore... You, you see it, everything as equal in a station. Yeah, exactly. I see everything as uh, it's all part of a, um integrated process that if any part of it fails, it, it might not crash overnight, but eventually the bit that's failing will destroy the, the, the bits front and back. So, for instance, if you had a station that was rating through the roof and its news was great and its position in the market was great and its talent was great, but you just had really crap ads and yeah. they were badly scheduled. The, 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 audience will work will walk, the audience will walk away. Yeah, they will. Yeah, well, also the, 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 the advertisers will say, I don't care what your ratings show and I don't care who you've got doing breakfast. I, I spent X amount of money and it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. So, so therefore, all the parts have to work well. The, now, the other thing about creative, which <laughs> um, if you look through my track record, whenever I've been a station manager or at a company, uh, if you look back, I realise now that people, I converted a high number of creatives into management roles, into leadership roles. Right. And, you know, I'm very proud of that. And I met a fascinating consultant once who explained all about how the brain works and who's naturally inclined to, to you know, this is all left brain, right brain thinking. This is some people creative brain, some people, yes. you know, analytical, perfect accountant sort of thing. And what she, and she did a, we did a dummy run. We did 60 people at random throughout the prospect group. And we analysed the results. And what she told me was she said, look at all the creatives. She said a creative has to sit down and and the good ones have to have this very analytical, logical mindset where they can look at a brief and say, what does the client need? What's their target? What's their message? How do we capture, you know, what's the call to action? And then to switch off that log logical, uh, analytical side of the brain and they're completely creative. You know, how can I make an ad set? And the fact that they can flick from one to the other makes them very, very good candidates uh, to go into management roles where they have to have a brain that can weigh things up, but then, you know, get people to change or think differently, you know, by approaching the problems creatively. Well, wow, I've um, never I've never heard that before, and and you, you you're actually dead right. I think about my my history, and yeah, uh, uh, yeah, it sounds a bit sour grapes, but 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 often sometimes working in radio uh -huh. as a as a creative, you were you were just below the receptionist, to be honest, and um, slightly above the um, administration assistant in in the finance department, but because. Because you were often seen as a liability rather than an asset. 
And and <laughs> you, you putting it that way makes me realise, yeah, that, that that's what you do all day. You listen. You you have good ones have to listen to the client and then go away and then create something which that fits to what the client needs. So as a result, they're using both sides of their brain. Yeah, really important. If if, if I if I was visiting a radio station that was having problems. And I could only go in there for two or three hours to pick people's brains. I'd want to spend an hour of that talking to the creators. Right. And, and, and say, tell me about what's happening with your clients. Tell me about what the challenges you're facing. Because I, I guarantee you'll get to the core of the problem quicker if you're looking at the whole through that little window, you know? And it's interesting, um, interesting these days because of cost cutting and so forth. There, there are hubs both in New Zealand and Australia. You've, you've, you've got, you've got Billy writing an ad in Hamilton for, for, for a, for a client in Taupo or, or Napier. And you've, you've got Jill in Auckland writing for one in Christchurch. I mean, yeah, they're, 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 they're not getting that connection, are they, with the clients more and more that's happening. No. Well, again, that problem goes back 30, 40, 50 years in New Zealand radio because the opportunity we missed in New Zealand was, uh, you know, the day that, you, that radio started giving its uh, create, creative away, once you do that, it's very hard to suddenly start charging. Yes. Uh, you know, when I went over to the UK, and I, and I hate to think that my comments earlier indicated that there wasn't anything I liked about the UK, far from it, the regulation. The regulation environment was bad, but the amount of creativity uh, was immense. And the thing they got right more than anyone was the value of, um, you know, creating ads. Um, so they, the clients would be charged because what the clients were getting was was awesome. You know, if you yes. wanted, so so uh, the creatives I worked with, you know, they'd approach it and say to the client, "You need a budget of X, Y, Z." Um, because we're going to use Joanna Lumley as the voiceover and we're going to use this device and that device. And, um, you know, it was done really properly. Um, so that they got great creative. Now, don't forget, in a country of 60 million people, <laughs> a great ad <laughs> gets yes. huge results, you know? Yes. And, you know, one one little thing is is I often go and talk to sales guys around Australasia and so forth, and the number of times I'll ask them, so you guys got, got a favourite ad? You've got an ad that, that, that you absolutely love? Very few of them have an ad. Yeah. That, very few of them have, have an ad that they go, oh, often it's just the last one they've done. They don't have a series of four or five ads on their computer that they go, that's one of my best radio commercial I've ever heard, you know, and that's sad because it's just spots and crosses. But look, you know, I'm not going to change that. And as I, I, I sound like an old, an old prick who's who, 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 who's a bit bitter about it. But you know, I've had a great career writing creative, and um, it's been great hearing from you and and seeing the perspective that you give it. Yeah. Well, look. Yeah. Every part in that station, has, you know, on a station has a part to play. Um, you know, you turn up on a station where the schedules team don't know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, see, see how much fun you're going to have them sorting <laughs> yeah. that out. Yeah. Um, the yeah. schedules ladies are so important. Yeah, I used to yeah. work with yeah. them all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, it's, 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 it's almost a given that we focus on the, the on-air talent, and, 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 and so we should because… Well, they're the yeah. shop window, aren't they? Yeah. They're the shop window, but it's all the bits that you don't see that make a radio station function well. 
I, I've been fortunate, certainly in the UK and uh, and in New Zealand, where I've worked with teams of people who generally get that, you know, and, and yes, yes. they support each other and, 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 and have respected each other. Great to chat, um, Josh. We could, we, 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 you know, this is a pretty long and we could keep going for hours but um i'll try and, i'll try and cut this up and 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 uh turn it into something a, a little less of my rambling and and more of you and and it's um melbourne cup day here 2020 i've got a few horses what do you what do you like in the in the cup uh well i'm completely stuck on um I've, I've got no choice but to back a thing called the chosen one, number seventeen. Well, he's got because a good, he's got a good rep, and um, he's 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 raced well up till now. Yeah. Well, the thing is, he's from Cambridge, so he's, he's the only New Zealand trained horse. You know, so he, he's stabled at Cambridge, and he's gone over there. So if if it bloody wins, the whole town will be rocking tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have ten. I'll have ten ten on it, I think, and because uh, I I did a little bit of work on it. This morning, so look great to chat, Josh. Um, good luck in the cup, and um, yeah, great, great chat about radio. Thank you. All right, thanks, Sean. By the way, Josh from VoiceMedia.com.au puts all these together for me, and uh, he does a great job. If you're looking for a sound engineer and want to work with a top bloke, get in touch with Josh. He's at VoiceMedia.com.au. Ads is brought to you by BesideTheSeaside.co.nz.